Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, welcome to another episode of Rebranding Cannabis. Uh, today's special guest is none other than Dave Palachuk. Uh, Dave is a good friend of mine. Uh, we've worked together on a few projects, and uh, more importantly, he's he's one of the top experts in you know branding cannabis. This is Rebranding Cannabis. I'm your host, Jared Mursky, and you're listening to the show that helps the industry grow. Hear from industry titans, thought leaders, and the up-and-coming founders of this multi-billion dollar industry. Presented by Wick and Mortar. Much like myself, he's been in the industry for quite some time and has had uh, quite a bit of experience, uh, you know, growing, you know, national brands in the space. And so uh, I really wanted to have him on the show because I thought it would be important for you know us to take note and you know not only where he's come from uh, but what he's done and and more importantly where he's going. Dave, welcome to the show, brother. How are you? Thank you, Jared. It's great to be here. It's good to get out considering the pandemic. So it's uh, it's nice to be six and a half feet away from you. <laughs> no kidding, right? I know you've got a little kid at home, so. That must be different, you know. He's how old is he now? He's ten. He's ten. So he's ten, and you know, are, are you used to working at home all day long, or weren't you working in an office before? I was <clears throat> most of my career. I've worked in an office, but uh, now I'm working from home and homeschooling during the pandemic. So it's uh, it's quite different than it was six months ago. Is it hard to get work done? It is. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but it's all good. I also spend more time with my son now, so that's pretty cool. That's good. Now you've been, um, you know, you've been working on a book called, uh, see here, Branding Bud. Branding Bud um, has a really, really great quote on the back by uh, this guy right here. But on a serious note, um, there's a lot that we can all learn from this book. I've read it once or twice, but please tell us a little bit about it. Well, even though the book is a book, for me, it's been a great journey. You know, it's been a number of years of meeting brand owners who uh, have come from all walks of life uh, and have created brands that express their vision and their perspective, um, but all with the same thread of cannabis. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So... It's been amazing to see, and um, it's been amazing the journey that I've taken in writing this book, um, meeting with um, cultivators that understand cannabis, meeting with business people that um, understand business processes, and seeing those worlds sort of collide and come together. It's been pretty amazing. Um, Now, how long ago did you start in cannabis? I started um, just before, I left Microsoft just before um, 2012 when the I-502 law came, the recreational law in Washington State came to pass. That's right. Yeah, and I've, I mean, I've pretty much known you since you, because you worked at Dope for a little bit. Uh, you mm-hmm. did a lot of consulting. Because yep. um, that's, you know, when I met you, that was when you were working at Dope Magazine. Um, but what's interesting about your background is, uh, you know, you're, you know, and for everyone listening, you know, he's, he's a creative, you know. Where did you start your creative uh, path or career? And, and I guess, how'd you itch that? Well, it's interesting. I think I always knew I was creative. Um, but <clears throat> many years ago, I don't think it was 
as acceptable now as as it as it was then for men to be creative. So I was interested in fashion as a kid, but you know that insinuated certain things. Um, over time, you know, I was always interested in creativity, and creativity came out in different ways. Uh, whether it was you know your typical art, or for me, skateboarding was a, a way of being creative. Um, and again, which wasn't very popular in New York in in the uh, you know 1970s. Um, but uh, it was pretty much just a Cali thing, huh? Back then yeah. it was. Yeah, back then it was. But um, yeah, I used to get made fun of in in junior high school and high school for uh, for walking down the hall with a skateboard. Now, did did uh, was skateboarding at the time, at least in New York, was that considered like a stoner thing to do? Like, was it, was there, was there, uh, you know, was at the, I, I, I wasn't born in the seventies, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I'm wondering was, was skateboarding, uh, and cannabis, you know, something that kind of correlated as what people identified to be, you know, stoners. Well, I, I would then. say, I would say yes and no. Okay. Right. You, you know, so skateboarding comes from surfing. Surfing has always been associated with counterculture mm-hmm. and and cannabis fits right in um but then again so does art so does music so many other things that True. are now considered yeah. mainstream but probably back then were considered counterculture so um it's it's interesting to see the crossover between creative worlds and cannabis and how um you know Back in, back in the days, in, in the 20s, it was, you know, all of the black jazz musicians, um, you know, which were the outsiders. Um, you know, now in some ways it's, uh, you know, it could be artists, it could be creators. Um, but yet, because cannabis is coming toward the mainstream, the use of cannabis and the conversations around cannabis are not so outside and counterculture It's not unfamiliar anymore. to you at all. It sounds like you've been exposed to cannabis pretty much your whole life i have i mean i've i've been around it um i was um never a consumer of it Mm -hmm. when i was younger um and i I think quite frankly that that was because my (laughs) older brother and sister were uh and i saw um some of the uh the situations they put my parents into (laughs) so i wanted to just be the the cool kid out of the three of us um, and, and keep it cool with my parents, but, um, I didn't start smoking until I was like 18 myself. Actually, I, got, I smoked so much weed. I can't remember when the first time it was that I smoked weed, but I know that I was out of high school when I did it. Pretty sure. <laughs> That's funny. Um, can I, sh- can I share a story speaking of, yeah. um, first time at 18? Oh yeah. Um, my older brother had, uh, given me a joint and uh, said, if you're ever going to smoke, I would just want to make sure you smoke something that's good and not something off the street and you don't know what you're smoking. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, great. And he gave me one joint, and I probably had that joint for almost a year. And it was Halloween night in my senior year of high school. <clears throat> Before going into my girlfriend's house, uh, who was having a party, I decided to try it on my own. And... Um, had never smoked before that, and uh, actually smoked by myself, walked into my girlfriend's apartment, um, or sorry, house, her parents' house, sat down on the couch, and basically stared off into space for the next three or four hours. Um, Did they know you were stoned? 
Um, I don't know if they knew I was stoned, but after that, everyone thought I was a stoner and a skateboarder. And so to come back to your question, um, those things weren't totally connected, um, but I have a lot of friends who actually you know, solidified that connection between cannabis and skateboarding. Um, well, it's going to ease the pain for sure with all those crashes. I mean, you and I went skateboarding, you and Mitch went skateboarding what, a couple, couple few weeks ago. And uh, I near ate shit. I could, I, there was no way I was going to carve on that <laughs> shit you guys were doing. No way. Uh-uh. I was going to, I would eat, I would eat shit for sure. That's why I keep it, yeah. keep it low. Yeah. And simple. Um, so, Let's kind of let's kind of jump back into uh, the beginning of you know back into the beginning of your time as a creative. Uh, you know, you said you got into fashion, and and so that took you to a few places. Um, when you got into fashion, now I I remember you know because we've been friends for a while. You told me about you know what you did at Zoo York, but was that the beginning of your fashion kind of path, or was that later on in your fashion board career? Well, it's it's funny. Um, it's not so fashion specific. Um, you know, it's fashion, it's design, it's uh, lifestyle, licensing, um, licensing as well. But but you know, so in in the early '80s, brands were first starting to um, do things that brands had never done before. Um, you know, and <clears throat> tying in with influencers in a way that they had never quite done before. So let's take Adidas and run DMC. Um, you know, there's so many examples of where brands and music and art and creativity came together. And today, you wouldn't think of brands and art and creativity sort of happening any other way. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they naturally flow, you know, to each other and from each other. Um, but back then, brands didn't offer the promises that brands do today. You know, so it was over time that, that brands started to come out organically and create themselves. And for example, Zoo York is one of mm-hmm. them. I mean, Zoo York was really a skateboard graffiti gang in New York City um, that, you know, eventually wow. sold, sold skateboards so cool. and, and then started to sell T-shirts with the logo um, and some of the graffiti art on it. How'd they and capitalize from... And what's cool is like the correlation between this and cannabis, but they capitalized on doing something illegal, built a brand around it, and this huge community. Mm-hmm. And so like, what, how did they do that? Well, they were, they were actually really smart. I could, you know, tell you a quick backstory. Yeah, to yeah, Zoom tell, York, please. But, um, what, <clears throat> what they did was they knew that they had um, sort of a legacy of, of graffiti content, um, I mean, content wasn't even a word back then, but, you, you know, they had a legacy of graffiti content with a lot of graffiti writers that were well-known, that were legendary in the streets of New York and <clears throat> Harlem and the Bronx. Um, they were able to um, take the name Zoo York, which they wrote on the bottoms of their skateboard skateboards, just like Dogtown did on, on the West Coast in Santa Monica. Um, and they basically were smart enough um, to put a package together that uh, encapsulated the brand. And at the time, uh, Japanese companies were very interested in American brands, as, as they still are. Um, 
and they pitched New York to a Japanese apparel company um, as an underground skateboard streetwear brand. But there had to have been like somebody that was just sharp as a tack on that team because it doesn't sound like to me it was just a bunch of like you know Joe Schmo skateboarders that love to you know tag shit. Sounds like these guys were pretty intellectual people if they had the know-how go and like build a brand around it and and find people like yourself and then go find investors like well i'll be honest with you um my experience with zoo york was sort of an amazing uh schooling for me um and you're right they did have a team of uh amazing people um there are three founders of zoo york um adam eli and rodney each had their own specialty if you will uh rodney was uh a longtime skater with uh, deep roots in the skate community um Adam and Eli had worked at Fat Farm uh, with Russell Simmons and understood art, graffiti, culture, um, apparel. Um, and it was Adam's father, who is a fairly well-known entertainment attorney, um, that was able to take what was manifesting under his nose um, and basically create, um, uh, create a package mm-hmm. and go license it to a Japanese company which then funded the, the real business operations of Zoo York, which then made skateboards and apparel here in the U.S. Um, uh, and, and built out the company. How are they doing it today? Well, the, the journey of Zoo York is really amazing. Um, again, started out as a graffiti skateboard gang, um, <clears throat> then formalized um, over a six to eight year period, became a multi-million dollar company. Uh, it then sold to Echo Unlimited, uh, the the hip hop yep, company, yep. Um, and then um, Echo Unlimited sold it to um, to a larger company that uh, that I'm spacing out on right now, but to a larger company that uh, also owns other major brands like Calvin Klein. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah, I remember Iconics, seeing them. I'm sorry, Iconics is the okay. uh, the company that owns many brands. Yeah, and I remember seeing them in Zoomies for sure. They are at Zoomies, but they're actually the house brand now for JCPenney. Oh, um, shit. So it's, it's, Is that a good thing? Well, it's an interesting thing. I don't necessarily know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I think if you ask the owners of the company, it's not where they would prefer their baby to be. Um, but it's a real interesting story of a, a brand's trajectory of how it could be cutting edge. One minute and... Yeah, 20 years ago, and, and at JCPenney as a house brand. I think after it gotten sold off and sold off and sold off at a time, yep. you yep. kind of lose that traditional, that, that those values, I think, that the company originally understood. That's right. And, and to um, Iconic's um, you know, favor, uh, what they recently did was hired back the three original owners um, to relaunch Zoo York as the Olympics in Tokyo were going to take place and skateboarding was going to be in the Olympics for the first time. Um, so they were, they were basically relaunching the brand. Um, what's unfortunate is the pandemic happened and the Tokyo Olympics have been canceled and and therefore everything's been put off, you know, for another four years. But uh, it was an attempt to uh, to bring back the original, um, you know, momentum in the brand. So when you when you got now and so thanks for sharing the story about Zoo York. I think it's super interesting because it 
just sheds light on, you know, how a brand with a great story can go from positioning itself one way to a completely dif- different direction, especially after it's jumped from one hand to another, you know, several times. So just, I think that's a good, good uh, nugget of information to be mindful of as it pertains to the hands you intend to let into your brand if you so choose to sell it or bring on investors, whatever the case is. I think that's really good insight. Um, and what's also important is, um, you know, it's not only the changing of hands, but it's the changing of hands and selling your brand, in, in this case of New York, to a number of different companies, but ending up at a larger company, which is a corporate uh, beast beast that, that is managing multiple brands. A and whole different so, company culture. That's right. Yep. And, and that they may not even understand the brand they just purchased, you know, the culture of the brand that they just purchased. So it's, it's important, um, you know, as, as long as you want your brand, your baby to last, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you keep that in mind. And that's why I'm excited for us to do some sh- shit together, dude. You know, we're going to build some really dope brands for the cannabis industry. Just wait, folks. We've got some ideas concocting in the background. You'll just have to wait for. But that's the teaser. Yeah, that's the teaser. That's the call to action. Um, but it's a long. It's it's a bit of a wait. So, um, so when you when you got into fashion, you you jumped into New York. Now you told us the story of New York, but you didn't really tell us how you integrated into the organization. What did you specifically do for them? And why'd you leave? When was that moment? And, and why'd you kind of, I wouldn't say jump ship because that's not at all what you did. You just moved on to, uh, you know, a much bigger and better path. But Yeah, so, so um, the best way to say this is I'll start off by saying I was never officially with Zoo York. So I was in my earlier mm-hmm. years a skateboarder that was based in New York and hung out with the Zoo York crew. I was from Long Island, so I was considered a pussy versus the, the, the dudes that were living up in Harlem, basically going into the subway tunnels tagging things. So, so you know, I was part of that crew, but, but let's call it the B team, if you will. Fast forward over many years, um, I went to college, I went to Parsons School of Design, um, I then owned an art gallery in New York City for many That's years. That's right, you did. And, and then um, went back... Um, from my MBA, and after my MBA, worked at American Express and MasterCard. And it was when I was um, uh, working at American Express that there was the Broadway bomb taking place, which was a big run from Harlem down to Soto in New York, down Broadway. And basically everybody gathered at at a certain point at the end of the day in Central Park. You said said bomb? Broadway bomb. Bomb? bomb. D-O-M-B? Yeah. yeah. So you have hundreds, if not thousands, of skateboarders just taking over Broadway. Oh, and just, just bombing down the street? Okay, that's what I meant. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that was when I actually um, uh, met Adam from New York okay. and sort of reconnected. But at that point, um, I was older. I had an MBA. Um, but he was also amazed that you know, I was still around, that I was one of the originals, that I understood um, their brand, that I was friends with, you know, everyone from Puppethead and Andy Kessler and all, and Harold Hunter and all the crazy characters uh, from New York. So, um, 
so we came together and while I was working at American Express and then into MasterCard, which were my nine to five jobs, mm-hmm. I always joke that my five to nine job was coming out of the corporate world, coming back to into the shadows. That's right. To hang out into the meat market area, to go to New York and work through the various business components and help them biz build their business. Um, and and that's basically how I was able to come back years later, 10, 15 years later, um, as a guy with an MBA with business experience, but knew the skate culture, knew how to develop products, knew how to get them into stores, and knew how and knows how to monetize a brand. You know, I was watching a podcast last night. Um, it was uh, Joe Rogan and Kevin Hart, and Kevin was talking on and on about, um, it was brilliant, but so true. He was talking on and on about... Uh, how in order to be successful and not rich successful but happy successful because that's what success is right is being truly happy with where you're at in life and with what you're doing no matter how much money you're making or how little because money does not buy happiness people at the top are very lonely and it's a secluded life um as most celebrities will eventually tell you so um but he talked about like uh, talked about you know um, success being also you know when you've you've done enough of the grunt work the shit you just don't like doing and that you know you don't want to do for the rest of your life but what it does is teach you things you didn't expect to learn and also ultimately conditions you for the future what would you say some of the experiences are that you've had in your life that have helped condition you to get to that point that you got to well, there, there's so many. There's so many, but... Um, well, we've got time, brother. Let's go through a few because, you know, this is how, this is how people learn, right? Is from our fuck-ups. <laughs> because we're successful now, but we once weren't. And all of the shit that we went through, right, to get to where we got, you know, it wasn't handed to us. We had to make some mistakes in order to learn how not to make those mistakes again. Right. Whether they were good or bad mistakes were made tell us about yours tell us all your faults i'm just kidding (laughs) um you you know i i think it's it's funny there's lots of lessons you know that that i've learned um i think at the end of the day you know i've started off with big dreams and as i as i try, try to build those big dreams the one thing i realize is and that it's always constant is shit takes work. Fuck and, yeah. And so, so there's very few people that are lucky enough to have success come immediately. And even when it appears often that they have success overnight, I think it's not overnight. Um, yes. that's sort What's of, that saying? Um, it takes 10 years to have overnight success. And some people don't even get that. But, yeah. um, you know, but I think, I think, there's just certain things that, you know, my humbling experiences were, I remember when, well, before I even get to that, I, I think there are certain risks that you could take that are calculated risks. Um, and you don't necessarily have to jump off cliff every time you want to start something. Yeah, but they're calculated too because you've made risks similar to those in the past and realized why your calculations were just a little bit off, right? That's true. You know? That's true. 
you know, and, and like one example would be uh, when I was at Parsons School of Design, um, my best friend and I saw everyone's work around us and we thought, wow, these people are really creative. How come, how come all the art, art galleries are selling all of these famous artists' work, but no one's really taking care of the students that actually need the money more, um, you, you know, and no one was highlighting their creativity. So um, we started to throw art parties in different nightclubs, in the Palladium and the Limelight in New York City uh, back in the late 80s. And um, we started to sell, surprisingly, started to sell our friends' artwork. And then we started to go to other schools and sell other students' work. Before you know it, teachers and professors were coming to us and say, could you sell our work? And we were. And so finally we said, why are we living in an apartment uh, in the East Village? Why not move into a storefront live in the back while we're finishing up school, and we'd have a gallery. And so to me, that was a calculated risk. We were oh, yeah. already selling art and design. Um, we were already paying rent on an apartment. When we were roommates. We might as well just move into this gallery. And so we moved into the gallery. We um, tried to raise some money to start the business and really build out the gallery the way we wanted. And I remember I needed ten dollars or $15,000 to sheetrock the gallery. I had gone to my father and asked him. He looked at me and said, kidding me? I will come to the gallery. I will sheetrock one wall with you and show you how to do it. And you'll sheetrock the rest of the gallery. The Jewish family way. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and so I became a great sheetrocker, right? And, uh, and every month we'd build out the gallery a slightly different way. We'd um, paint the colors, you know, the walls different colors and we would have different thematic shows mm -hmm. but you know what that showed me is that you could take certain risks um and certain calculations and basically build something mm -hmm. and so we ended up building you know a fairly successful uh design gallery um where we sold one-of-a-kind limited edition pieces of furniture and you learned how to sheetrock a lot of sheetrock that's yeah. right that's right and uh and it was recyclable too um and uh, so those are the sorts of things that I've learned over time that, as you just said, even though Kevin Hart is at a certain level, I'm not quite there yet. So I still can roll up my sleeves and get shit done when, when you need to. And I think that's, no matter what level you're at, if you're able to do that or willing to do that, that's where you can kick ass. Yeah, and I think it, for some, like, people are very discouraged. They're, uh, they're too self-critical. And I think that puts a barrier between what people want and what people believe they can do. And that's so damaging. Um, you know, I think the reason why I was able at an early age, well, I would say my early 20s, to kind of get out of what I call my, uh, my rut. Um, you know, I had somebody that was extremely... Uh, you know, motivational. And it, of course, was my parents, but it wasn't my parents that got me over my hump, so to speak. It was a friend who I grew up with. His name's Frankie. And, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, someone taking the time to understand how I learn and then teach me the way that I learn. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was really, really helpful because it gave me the ability to better understand what my potential is, both creative and in the business world. And I learned how to, you know, take my creativity and apply it to business. 
I look at contracts and go, oh my God, this was written so good now. As were before, I'd be like, oh my God, I did not want to read that. But I look at things, I'm like, ooh, I like that. I like, I mean, it's, things, so many things are so fascinating to me now. And I, and I try and, and I try and go back, Dave, and I try and go, well, why did this become so fascinating to me? When did this happen? And, you know, because when I would think about like, you know, raising capital and shit like that, you know, uh, for a brand or for a company, those weren't things that I even cared to think about, you know, seven years ago or eight years ago. I just, I didn't really care because I just, you know, I was like, eh, I'm just going to be, uh, you know, a creative and I'm just going to grow this agency and that's all I'm going to do. And then you, you move through life and you're like, well, shit, that, like, that year just changed my life. Now I have way more I want to work on. It's like, it's, it's ever evolving. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting what you say. I think typically the, the older you get, the more experience you have and you start to see things in a different way. Um, coming from the old guy, right? Yeah. But, um, you know, one of the things that has always stuck with me and, um, and if anybody knows me, this story, they're probably and they're listening to this. They're probably rolling their eyes. But in the eighth grade, I had a teacher in geometry and he taught us the um, area and the circumference of a circle I still remember it it's uh, cherry pie delicious apple pie are two so cherry pie is circumference equals pi um, times radius square area of a circle I don't <laughs> have to go through it but you get it and I thought and that's just my point why on earth am I ever going to need this information like why do i care about these equations and why are they meaningful to me a few years later i was building a skateboard ramp with my father who's an engineer and he starts to write out this equation and i'm like what are you doing and he said oh, i'm figuring out the transition on the skateboard ramp we're building right now and it dawned on me that what he was actually doing was this equation that I was taught many years ago in school that I had no fucking idea how I would ever apply to anything in my was life. Was it algebra? Geometry. Oh. And, um, and, and sure enough, yeah, same difference, right? And sure enough, um, all of a sudden, here it was being used, and I was like, wow. But now that I saw that it was applied, I was blown away, and I was like, okay, you know, that's a good I'm point. A the application. That's right. Yep. And so, you know, just to even double click on this for a minute, which I think is really interesting, since my time in the cannabis industry, um, developing brands, you know, I've worked with herbalists, I've worked with food scientists, I've worked with all sorts of people, you know, biologists, um, people in the ag business. And it really makes me wish that I paid attention to my science classes when I were in junior high school and high school because back then again man I say the same thing all the time I love learning more now than I ever did before but I think it's also our teachers that are slightly at fault for not paying more attention to the students that require uh, learning in a different way I agree I mean I was definitely one of but I was also of, a little shit so there yeah, was that so. <laughs> <laughs> um for, for me, it was attention. I just needed to know that my teacher cared about me, so um, that was important to me. Mm -hmm. If I was just a number in the room or the auditorium, then I, I couldn't care less. Yeah, um, that's, that's truth. You know, I think I definitely cared more about the classes where the teachers were 
kinder, more respectful, and dedicated more time. Yeah. But I think, too, you know, the one thing, and again, this will sound very old of me to say, is, you know, over and over again, I hear kids today say they're bored, right? It's so typical. And when I was a kid, you know, we weren't bored. You know, we, we went out, we found shit to do, we got into trouble, we, whatever it was, we built things, mm-hmm. um, whatever it was. But um, there was a sense of curiosity, I think, that maybe doesn't exist today as much. Things are sort of more, in some ways, spoon-fed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if people have that curiosity, which I think naturally occurs later in life, um, if that could happen earlier, and if, if children were taught to be more curious and to explore in ways that were more comfortable to them, which is, I think, your point, um, if, if they were supported to explore, to learn. Well, kids were already wander. challenged not to necessarily question things. That's a condition right. um, of the current education system. But you're spot on. Like, I think when, when, I get pe- when people message me on Instagram, because I get tons of messages, how do I break into the cannabis industry? How do I get into branding? I want to come work for you. Let me intern for you. I'm like, okay, let's pump the brakes a bit because I don't have time to teach you everything I know, right? Um, you need to, there's a starting point. You know, so I, I generally recommend like Greenflower Media as a resource because you know, we've got, I've got a course on there. There's like the, the uh, business essentials where I teach the whole branding process. And there are other great instructors there too, of course, but, you know, I think people need to, you know, walk before they run a bit as they, you know, seek to enter into the industry. There's just so many areas and it's so incredibly complex. But, you know, looking at that, when, when people ask me, you know, on Instagram, you know, how, you know, how I can help navigate them um, to a path that is ultimately going to help them find their, their quote-unquote, like, just unicorn job, right? I say, I, I first ask them, I say, well, what do you love to do? Like, what are your hobbies? Like, what do, you, what do you enjoy doing for fun? And let's find a way to make that into a job as it relates to cannabis or not. Um, I generally love to use that as a starting point. And then if somebody says, oh, well, you know, I want to, I want to throw events. Great. Let's, let's talk about how, how you would throw an event. Do you know what it takes to throw an event? Well, no, but I know I want to do it. Okay, great. Let's talk about all of the areas of expertise that you would need to know in order to throw an event. And let's see how many of those areas are of interest to you to learn in order to get to the point where you can actually be a showrunner and put an event on, right? And so I think it's, I think it's identifying what their dream job is or their path and then giving them a starting point so that they have a roadmap. I think the roadmap for a lot of people is oftentimes hard to figure out because no one takes the time to help them understand where to start and what steps to take as it, as it, you know, uh, as it follows. Well, you know what's interesting? I get that same question, by the way. Um, my answer is, you've already started. Right. And and what's really important about that is, is because people think about the present, where I am today, and then they think about where do I want to go? What's my dream job? But they don't often think about the past. 
And if you don't think about the past, which is where you've been, what your core competencies are, what your experiences are, and how you're going to layer them in to what you're going to do in the future, which is essentially what you just said, but in a slightly different way, then you can't get there. So the thing that I always do is I always say, you've already started to get in, to enter the cannabis industry. You don't even know it. Then I say, you know, what are the things you've done in the past? Tell me your last few jobs. Tell me those things. Let's sort of figure out what strengths you have that can sort of take you from your past through the, through the present and into the future. Um, I actually just did that with somebody recently who's in the cannabis industry already, but more of an assistant, um, very passionate about, um, uh, you know, policy. And so, you know, we've had a number of conversa conversations. Now she's applying to law school. Her plan is to take her cannabis knowledge to go to law school to become a policy mm -hmm. attorney and come out. So, like, she's, she already has her, her sights, but it's all about connecting the dots. And it's not only where you are, but it's where you've been and where you'll be in the future. Because we often have things that, that are relevant. Mm -hmm. So, again, coming back to my story, I've got you know, an understanding of art and design, an understanding of and a participation in skateboarding. To me, those translate into what lifestyle is, what experiential marketing is, what culture is, you know, the culture of skateboarding, the culture of art and design. A lot of ingredients um, here. Right. And, and then getting my MBA, working at American Express, MasterCard, Pepsi, Microsoft, understanding what consumer product goods are, services and so um, and along the way becoming a certified licensing specialist so understanding what brand licensing is about and how people license brands from territories now let's jump into that because that's a that's a topic that to me i think is uh what's going to exist a lot in the future of cannabis well it it has to yep just based on the laws but also based on a few other things but um but just to finish up the thought yes, about the, the people that want to come in the industry, right? So, so I've just shared my story, but I could pull those certain critical points or those critical skills um, or that knowledge that I've under, <clears throat> you know, that's taken me decades to learn. And now I can leverage them into the cannabis industry in, in a meaningful way. <clears throat> and that's what people need to do. So if you studied agriculture, and you work at nurseries, and this is almost too literal, right. but you, you, know, you could take those skills and you can become a cannabis cultivator or a manager at a, at a cannabis you know, grow or facility, those, those types of things. There's, there's ways in, but you have to see what your skill set is and, and basically find the best way to add value because yeah. no one's just inviting you in. You have to find value and make a place for yourself. Yeah, normally I would tell people to just go to a conference also and just look at all of the jobs available and mm -hmm. see what piques your interest. Ask questions, do some research. But <laughs> there aren't any events right now. Right, you know, along those lines, it's really funny. Last, uh, last year at the Cannabis World Congress in New York City, where yep. we saw yep. each other, yep. um, during the book signing, I actually had two people that I hadn't seen in years that were interested in getting into the cannabis industry. 
One was a senior vice president for MasterCard, and the other was an architect that uh, taught architecture at Parsons School of Design. So it's just funny, you start to see people years later that, again, you know, have had great careers in other industries yep. that are now trying to come into the Yeah, I mean, I'm, I feel pretty fortunate to have found, you know, uh, the cannabis space before it was an industry, you know, nearly 12 years ago. Double Garage grows before it took me to realize that I wanted to take my design skills in uh, the agency that I had built at the time and just pivot that to cannabis. Um, and then CBD came around, and uh, you know that was a that was another beast. And and now we've got you know mushrooms, psilocybin. So it's uh, um, that's going to be a, a really really interesting path. Um, primarily because shrooms are great. I mean, they just, I'm, we can get, we'll talk about shrooms in a little bit just because I want to save that for part of the conversation. But when I derailed you a little bit earlier, I wanted to jump into licensing and talk a bit about how that plays a role in the future of cannabis brands and, and their ability to scale faster. Um, and, and again, you know my thoughts on this, Dave. You know, I look at CPG brands. I look at, uh, you know, RX Bar. They sold to Kellogg for $600 million. They didn't own the manufacturing facility that they made their products in, but they had national distribution, a great brand, and um, a great product that people loved because it was, um, on, it was a, a trending product, uh, especially given, you know, um, the health risk a lot of food has on us today. And so, uh, you know, they've grown immensely, but that acquisition, you know, was massive. And they didn't, again, own the facility that they were making their products in. So why is it that there are so many cannabis companies building these large manufacturing facilities, knowing well enough that there's a chance that they might go out of business when the cost of cannabis significantly drops due to the distribution that will occur across state lines yeah there's um <laughs> that's a great question there's probably four or five questions in that there was i know it's just um but you know what's what's interesting is so the cannabis industry is interesting in that it's governed both at the federal level and at the state level there's lots of laws in place that prevent cannabis from being transferred over state lines right so for now yeah for now now, when you think about it, though, there are other businesses that have similar models, not because it's illegal, but because that's just the way it works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having worked with and at Pepsi, I also understand um, that. Mm -hmm. So let me give you their model. You know, Pepsi is purchased in, it's headquartered and purchased New York. Um, that's where the brands are created. All the programs are created, but at the end of the day, the cans and bottles are bottled in individual states and actually in multiple locations within those states. Why? Because there's no point in moving. It's, not, it's just cost prohibitive to move bottles uh, filled with liquid across um, state lines. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, the bottling industry, beverage industry, works very much like the cannabis industry now. So you have a corporate company 
which creates the brands. Mm -hmm. And you have bottling companies, which are in different states, basically following the brand guidelines, but pumping the caramel color, the sugar water, you know, the sugar in the water into the bottles and then distributing them locally. So if you think of it that way, you can start to understand the cannabis industry a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Now, let the growers grow, you know? Sure. Well, right. right. So the the growers will grow. They just can't sell across state lines. Um, Eventually, when when um, things change at the federal level, yeah, there's going to be some really big facilities, you know, probably in Palm Desert or some of the other places, which will grow and package cannabis. But what I think Um, is still unique, though, about cannabis versus other types of businesses is you've got you know then farms with wells and infrastructures that are so massive that they could perhaps provide cannabis to multiple states, thus reducing the need for nearly as many cultivation facilities. And I think that's, that's going to drop, I mean, that's going to drop the price it's, a it's, lot. It's like, true. So, a lot, a lot. But so... You want to hit this, by the way? No, I'm good. Thank you. But, um, but the, the thing to, to think about is... One thing I think is a little odd is to call the cannabis industry the cannabis industry. Because when you think about it, there's beverages, there's edibles, there's multi-form factors. There's medicinal, there's recreational, there's wellness. That's right. And so all of those have so many, I don't know, moving parts, right? So so to talk about cannabis, um, you know, a cultivator, a grower, is dealing with so many different things than... Um, a beverage company that basically is buying either their isolate or their distillate. They're mixing it in on, on the, you know, on the manufacturing floor and it's going through and it's being shrunk wrapped and shrink wrapped and so on and so forth. Right. Um, those are easy. Does it, those are the, you know, those are the things that a, that a beverage company deals with versus a, you know, a chocolate manufacturer. So, in some ways, you know, sure, the alcohol industry is the alcohol industry, but there's vineyard owners and winemakers. There's, you know, craft beer um, producers. So they're 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 different, and and I think even in that, alcohol is all a liquid, right? Um, with alcohol in it, you know, cannabis is now all these different form factors from transdermal patches and sublingual slips to edibles to you name it right to tinctures so it's well, non-alcoholic just, spirits let me just kind of jump in real quick non-alcoholic spirits uh are huge right now in the uk and now are coming into the u.s but what now is happening uh is the infusion of you know cbd or cbg cbn and into you know this these non-alcoholic spirits right which is uh i think you're listening to this podcast dropping nuggets it's going to be a new trend for sure. So jump on that shit, but go on. Sorry. I think there's, I think things are moving really fast in the cannabis space. And so the the general public is, even though CBD has blown up in our world and in the general world, for sure. I'm not saying it hasn't. I don't think people fully understand what it is. Some people think it's cannabis. Other people think there's THC in it. Mm -hmm. Other people think there's not some people think you get stoned from it you, you know like nobody fully has an understanding and you know according to the stats i've read only three percent of physicians or doctors will actually recommend cbd because it hasn't been fully tested 
So they're not doctors are not the ones to stick out their necks uh, to promote. Well, I something. mean, has it been? I mean, it's been pretty tested. I mean, the government clearly has a uh, some patents uh, on you know certain cannabinoid structures. So you know, it's been it's been pretty tested. And I think one of the biggest things that I've learned, and this was information I received from you know uh, someone who you also know, David Heldreth. He lives in my building. He's uh, you know, our chief scientist officer. And, you know, the guy is brilliant. I mean, one of the things that I learned is that CBD is very similar to grapefruits, right? In the sense that grapefruits, and the reason why doctors uh, do not recommend grapefruits to those that are on medications or prenatals is because it prevents the liver from producing the enzymes that break down those nutraceuticals or pharmaceuticals. And uh, apparently CBD is 10 times more potent than grapefruit and grapefruit juice. So it's no surprise why doctors, if they're also recommending pharmaceuticals, are also not necessarily recommending CBD for that reason. As where THC, perhaps they might, because it doesn't contain as much CBD in it. And that's one of the real reasons, you know, why um, uh, doctors and physicians just alike can't make those recommendations is because of that unique property. But there's a lot more science happening, you know, every day. And there's more cannabinoids being discovered too. Absolutely. And there's products where CBD is created out of citrus. Um, Yeah, I actually have some at my apartment. I actually wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah, yeah, citrus. It's, uh, well, and what makes that unique? So citrus is, um, so the the CBD-derived is from orange peel, right? And it's the same molecular weight and structure as um, epidiolol, which is, um, or epidiolex, which is already FDA-approved. And so, you know, I'm working with the company right now, and we're talking to some, and we're talking to, you know, China and Japan, because it doesn't violate their laws. And so, you know, uh, there's an interesting opportunity afoot. And, uh, you know, I think the citrus CBD pathway forward is definitely going to be an interesting play. I just wonder if Dubai would be accepting of that. And then you mentioned something earlier, too. I'm just stoned now, so I'm just kind of getting into the groove. I'm, I'm still following. I know, I know. Um, <clears throat> But, you know, just to kind of like debunk something, CBD does have a smidge of THC in it, not enough to get you high, okay? And um, there, yes, are different tolerances, but, you know, the amount of THC that is in, uh, you know, the regulated CBD products uh, is not enough to do that. However... If you take enough CBD, you will feel like butter. <laughs> I, have a, I have a brand, Arctic Powder, and when I take it, my, it's like, because it's got a 15-second onset, um, and that's RTIK.com, but it's, so you take it, and it's got a 15-second onset, and so, which is really, really fast, and, it's a, and so it's a water-soluble, and you know, I'll just put a couple scoops in my, in my water, take a little wire whisk and just give a little whisk away and then pound it. And then in 15 seconds, I'm telling you, I'm just like, oh, so like, 
it's not it's not high that you feel it's you just feel good it's like relaxed it's not like a euphoric feeling it's not something that uh inhibits you from you know talking or thinking or moving it just imagine uh, best examples like imagine stretching mm-hmm. normally like just imagine just getting on the floor right now and just doing some stretches it's going to be a little sore right um but you can do it you can push through the pain but you take cbd you take the cbd stuff and you know you sit down you do the same thing and what was once painful just doesn't feel painful anymore it just feels like a nice back massage right and i think that's the best way to equate the difference is to just eliminates the pain and makes you feel more limber well i think it has to do a lot with the inflammation but um or or helping with of course there's obviously scientific reasons but as far as like you know how do you translate someone who's questioning whether or not to take CBD, what the experience is going to be like from a physical sense. Yeah. And also too, just now with the farm bill, I mean, there's, there's certificates of analysis that will show you most products have that to show that, um, you know, the THC levels. COAs, yep. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, there's ways to be a smart consumer and a smart shopper and understand what you're taking mm-hmm. um but but there is a lot of conflicting information yeah yeah well let's jump back to licensing because that's something that i think again is uh going to be the future or a large part of the future of as it relates to cannabis brands um i talk to and you do too to a lot of companies about you know how to build a brand house right and how to build brands for the future, uh, you know, especially given the fact that uh, most companies who own their own facilities are unable and I wouldn't say unable, but have a much harder and more difficult time obtaining licensing deals in other states, primarily because either A, they're um, at capacity and utilizing all of their resources to, f- to operate in one state, and so they don't have the time to dedicate to other states. Um, or they're they're you know building out a facility in other states and it takes much longer, um, or you know they are doing licensing deals but again just are taking an, an an obscene amount of extra time because again they don't have the resources to dedicate to that. My recommendation has always been you know to not own the manufacturing side and just license your brand into each state. But, of course, it's not as easy as just going, hey, I got a brand. I want to go to this state and, you know, talk to a farm and go, hey, you want to you do a deal with me? You want to, you know, there's a lot more to it. It's much more complex. Um, now, obviously, you know, that's what you get paid the big bucks for. So I'm not expecting you to give away the gold, but I do want you to, share and shed some light on you know what companies should be thinking about um so that they can prepare to work with people like us when they are ready to start you know building a brand in preparation of launching it into you know each of these different states because each state has so many different rules and regulations and ultimately are very complex yeah and just managing those rules 
state to state is a full-time job and and that's what a brand manager would um or a cannabis brand manager right Mm -hmm. which is been more complicated than just being a brand manager but um Boy, um, where to start? There, there's, there's a lot here, right? So I know it's a lot to unpack. <laughs> so I guess let's start here. If, if you think of it to a certain degree like a franchise business, um, <clears throat> you know, hey, there's a brand that's working in a certain state. I think that would work in my state. Let me take a look at that. Well, the first thing any licensee is going to think about is, one, will this brand work in my state? Two, can I license this brand at a lower cost than creating my own brand? And three, they're always going to say, wow, this isn't my brand. I own it in this territory, in this state, for this amount of time. But once the laws change at the federal level, I don't own that brand. Mm-hmm. Whoever I was licensing it from, right? And, and then there's licensing fees. So there's a whole bunch of things that that person, the licensee within a state, has to think about. The owner of the brand has to, I guess, first and foremost know, like, no one's really going to license my brand if it's not successful in my state. So on some levels, you have to get that going, mm-hmm. you know, or have something that is so visually appealing to someone and they just see it on your computer or in a deck and say, yep. I need to have that. And most people don't come to market with that. They usually start with something kind of, you know, half-baked in-house. That's right. So to speak. Right. And conversely, the brand owner doesn't really want to go to somebody that's just starting up either. Yeah. You know, in a new state. They want to go, they want to visit a facility. They want to see the manufacturing, you know, the SOPs and all of that sort of stuff. So it's... In some ways, it's the chicken or the egg, you know, which happens. I guess it's always the licensor that happens first because the licensor owns the brand. Mm-hmm. So if there's no brand that's oh, owned, there's no conversation mm-hmm. to even get started. But so once that conversation starts, right, then there's all sorts of issues and concerns that both a licensee and a licensor will mm-hmm. have. That's number one. Number two is, you know, how do you work with a licensee? Um, and assure that they don't have a competitive product that's going to compete and cannibalize from your product, mm-hmm. right? So yep. there's lots, lots of layering that goes on here. Um, but at the end of the day, right now, the, and, and we should have even started here, the reason for licensing is because you can't move cannabis over state lines, so you need someone to cultivate it for you within a state and bring it to market within that state, and they typically need to be typically need to be licensed. They need to be residents. And of it's the a state. it's it's a reason, not the reason, right? Because there's other reasons why you should do it too. Correct. Right. Right. But but, but it's, it's it's probably one of the I driving say, reasons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A primary reason, and that's really because you know it costs millions of dollars to well, set up shops. Well, it's what CPG brands do too. Just like you said, I mean, Pepsi, Coca Cola. Except the difference is with at least, at least the model that I build is going to give you know give uh, you know these uh, cultivators stock in you know the brands that were essentially you know licensing through their cultivation facilities, so that they do have skin in the game. But if for whatever reason you know you know they get right. knocked on their ass, but have helped us 
grow a brand over the last two or three years, you know. Well, that's that's then, one strategy. You know, so if after two or three years they screw up big time, now you also have a partner that didn't start the brand, might have messed up big time in a certain state and damaged the brand's well, reputation. Well, they're a partner, so. but they're not, you know, it's not like a traditional partnership, you know. Right. It's just stock options, right? right? But, 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 what but they this are says, a partner, yes. Right, yeah. but what this says is that there's many things to think about, right? You know, I always say it this way, you know, getting married is easy. That's, that's just the wedding. That's signing the agreement. But it's, it's the marriage, right? It's the years of working with somebody. And it's even the getting divorced and still being... So you recommend living with them before marrying them? Um, just to test the waters? Because then you haven't fully committed yet. Because once you get married, once you marry them, then you're living with them. Then you could really find out some shit. Right. And based on my experience, I'm no one to, to, uh, to give any advice. It could, it, you know, there's so many ways that it could go and you just need to sort of see the end in the beginning, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. But the reason it does, the reason why it's similar to bottling like Pepsi and Coke mm-hmm. is because people are not moving carbonated water across the country. It's just too heavy. It's too, you know, costly. So that's why they do that in individual states. And that's really the only reason why they do that there. Yeah. Um, and also there's some other nuances, like typically the further south you go or in other countries, the formulations are different, yep. you know, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Well, in some, um, and, and some countries, different countries prefer things that are a bit more authentic, even though they do come from or originate from America. Mm-hmm. And like Coca-Cola or, you know, McDonald's. Right. You know, Starbucks. Right. Absolutely. Um, but let's talk about this because this is something that, you know, we are both also experts on. And I think we've chatted about this quite a few times. Um, but that's brand architecture. You know, uh, a lot of companies are looking at, uh, you know, how do I build, you know, multiple brands? Why do I build or why should I build multiple brands? What are the, what are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? So let's kind of start with that because to me, this this is where I think most companies fail to realize the opportunity. I agree. So, so it's funny. I actually sort of step back a little bit, and many of the things that I start off with is, and also called out in my book, are the 14 brand archetypes, cannabis brand archetypes. Yep. So if you think about, if you think about brand, brands in general, right? There are archetypes, mm-hmm. and yep. you know whether it's health and wellness, whether it's counterculture, you know celebrity brands, whatever it is, right? Um, they exist, and we respond to them as consumers. Mm-hmm. So for me, the way that I start to look at cannabis brands or create cannabis brands is I start to say, who is this brand for? What need is it filling? Um, you know, what's the consumer segment? And, and in many ways, even though there could be multiple segments um, and you need to create a product that relates to multiple segments at the same time, like for example, at Microsoft, when we launched Zune, um, a disaster on many levels, but at the end of the day was still an MP3 player. And so now you have to make this MP3 player appeal to country and Western folk, hip hop folk, rock and rollers, you know, and yet they all have to buy into this device and sort of relate to that device. But you have to customize it for them. So I always sort of think that, one, nothing is new. And actually, I often think people don't want anything new. They want something similar but different, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, 
you know, you don't see any six-wheel cars out there. Well, no, you're talking like Hershey's, right? Similar, but different. You know, Hershey's chocolate created the Hershey's bars. And then they, at one point, were like, you know, we want to create a product based off of the Hershey's bars called Hershey's Kisses. And it was a seasonal item, but was so popular that they decided to sell it all year round. And before you knew it, it became an ingredient in things like chocolate chip cookies and other recipes. And so they were like, hmm, well... We should make Hershey's chocolate an actual ingredient. Now, what Hershey's chocolate is made of is cacao and milk and all those other things, but they created Hershey's chocolate and made that an ingredient. And so they decided to take Hershey's chocolate and then develop a bunch of other sub-brands, right? I think like, uh, like Almond Joy, Kit Kat, Reese's, uh, you know, and some other brands. I'm not 100% sure if those are all accurate, but... As an example, they have a bunch of brands like that. And the brands all are made with Hershey's chocolate. So the brand equity of, my voice just cracked there. And the brand equity of Hershey's increases as it also does for each of the sub-brands because each of the sub-brands are almost like charging the parent, right? Parent company, like, you know, giving it energy, if you will, mm-hmm. because it's... Um, uh, you know, they're all benefiting from that same ingredient. And so they all, it, it all touches the parent company, which is, which is brilliant. And I think if you look at how CBD companies could be positioning themselves, um, or even THC, depending if you're using you know, very specific genetics to you know, influence the decision behind the experience that particular strain um, you know, induces, or if it's a CBD product and you're, you know, you're using like a formulation, right? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, this is, this is, I guess, classic brand extension, right? So through brand extending, you can take your brand and pull it into other areas that, that relate. So, you know, Mr. Clean initially having, I guess, an ammonia or cleaning product, you know, then moved into the little scouring brushes and then moved into the smaller things that, you know, wipe away, you know, you know, dirt on your sneakers, that sort of stuff, which totally makes sense from that brand. Um, I think in the case with, <clears throat> with THC brands, they have an opportunity to move into CBD products, so leverage their THC brand, which is typically locally known, right, a local brand, yep. leverage that into something that they can now move across state lines. So, and sell, and I should say, as opposed to move across state lines, I prefer to say sell nationally, right? And so if they could sell nationally, all of a sudden they're extending their brands into other places. So, um, And with the citrus CBD, yep. internationally. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, you, you know, I know that goes back here, to here in Washington, Bartels has a whole bunch of CBD products from some of the, um, some of the cannabis brands right. or some of the initial cannabis THC brands. And I, th- I think that's starting to happen. So, you know, but again, it's really interesting because <clears throat> those brands that are doing that successfully and are becoming known at the national level for CBD will most likely become or shift toward wellness brands versus a, recrea- a local recreational brand, right? <clears throat> mm-hmm. So the Stanley Brothers, for example, who started in Colorado, started as a THC cultivator, then focused on um, um, Charlotte's Web 
and the Charlotte Webb strain, then focused on um, children with ep- epilepsy, yep. then focused on their CBD, got a product line together. Now it's in the mass market, um, you know, pharmacies. So they're a brand that, again, will sort of evolve into what I think will become a health and wellness brand, as opposed to, you know, probably a local THC cultivator. Yep. So it's interesting to see um, how the industry is changing and how brands will change depending on their paths that they take and who they end up serving and what markets they end up serving. Agreed. And I think it's important to also call out that if you are building a brand house with um, uh, a number of different sub-brands that all have their own niche focus, right? Because that's the that's what each brand should I suppose, have in their DNA, uh, you know, is some level of differentiation and and nicheness as it pertains to the, you know, customer or the customer persona. Um, And, you know, it should have its own archetype, you know, it should have its own unique personality. Tone of voice should be different. This is what allows you to, uh, you know, penetrate different market segments of the industry uh, in an effort to, you know, not monopolize, but capitalize on all of these unique market segments that are, um, you know, what I call missed opportunities. You've got the senior citizens, you've got, you know, pet owners. I mean, pet owners, you know, command the most loyal, uh, you know, uh, consumers, because once you buy something for your pet and it works, it's very rare that you move to something else, you know? And so if you can create a, in, uh, you know, uh, a strong, loyal brand through the, you know, the pet owner, you know, the customer acquisition cost is going to drop significantly. But the biggest factor of all in retrospect to developing, you know, uh, you know, a brand architecture with these niche brands is that the retailer is going to look at you like a distributor. And what's going to happen is they're just going to say, well, shoot, I can buy, I can, I can pay less and buy through you because you have a larger brand selection um, than us going just to, you know, uh, direct to one, you know, company with one brand. Because if a retailer has to, you know, you know handle all billings for, you know, 200 different brands because there's 200 different companies, well, that's expensive. Right. That's extremely time-consuming. Time so that's why, you know, dispensaries work with or would prefer to work with distributors because they can buy from one company and get access to, you know, a bunch of brands. But if you're a brand house and you already have those brands, well, you can kind of cut out that middleman. I suppose that depends on the state you're in, but in most states, you can cut the middleman out and, you know, essentially be your own distributor. Um, But because you're not also handling the manufacturing and you don't have that, you then may be able to afford to invest more time in your own distribution, which is good because you can protect your brand and brands and, develop much more, uh, uh, I would say, um, feasible and, and stronger um, uh, brand loyalty programs, you know, like in-store, you know, in-store type shit, you know, the experiential stuff. And, and the, yeah, I mean, right? I agree with you, but, but there's the opposite side of the coin as well, which is, um, you know, which is really... Um, you don't invest in manufacturing within a state, but you all of a sudden are investing in distribution. So, and sometimes, as you said, the rules and regulations right. don't allow that. So, 
it depends. Each state is is its own its own uh, you know bundle of of issues. Yeah, it is. But that I think is also what makes you uh, you know unique is that you've already had a lot of the experience when it comes to you know building brand uh, licensing deals in you know multiple states. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And l- let me give you one example because because really. You know, and just to summarize this for the for the listeners is when licensing when licensing a brand across state line cannabis brand across state lines, there's a number of things you have to deal with. One is the brand, and as the brand owner, you have to manage the brand. But then the rules and regulations are very different. So, for example, we licensed a chocolate a well known chocolate bar um, out of California and Washington State into Arizona. Well, just to break it down as, sim- as simply as I can, there's, in terms of uh, megs, there's a 100 meg limit here in Washington State. And with, within each, and, and so if we're talking edibles. Yeah, 100 milligram, just to be clear. Right, yep. thank you. So if, if there's that cap at 100, and each individual serving can have no more than 10, yep. that means typically there's 10 pieces of chocolate in a bag or with a cap of 100 or it's it i mean it could in some places potentially be a bar with 10 tranches but they don't really do that well anymore. and sometimes there's two other things that i've seen that are unique they'll have one candy but it'll have preparations right that's what i meant yeah yeah yeah. okay so exactly. um or in liquids right if it's a 100 milligram liquid like if it's a soda You'll have this like clear wrapper or this clear label, and on that label, there's a level, there's a measuring, yep. you know, thing. And then the the lid will sometimes be, you know, a single serving, um, right? Like a dose you know, cup. Dose cup, yeah. Right. right. So you know, so th- there's there's very different rules and regulations. So for example, let's just use a chocolate bar. Um, ten servings of ten, what I call megs at a cap of 100 in Washington State. Now in Arizona, when we licensed, all of a sudden there's a 300 meg cap there, and you can have um, up to 50 megs per serving. So all of a sudden our chocolate bar was six 50 meg servings, which totaled 100. Well, wow, when you think about the mold for that chocolate bar all of a sudden has to change, and each piece has to change and you know then you get into the rules and the regulations so now if the chocolate bar is different sizes different volumes different doses and then you have all the different types of of um rules and regulations whether it be labels or or you know barcodes or all the other things that come on it's really tough and and then as you move from one state or even within that state, then there's different SKUs. There's all these other types of things. Um, and then when you start to move to multiple states, you've got multiple SKUs in multiple states. And it never fails. A licensee will, if they're not the brand owner, which typically they're not because they're a licensee, not an owner, mm-hmm. they will typically take shortcuts no matter what. My experience in Arizona was we had on a pouch a front label and a back label. Well, 
they came up with a great idea. They could condense everything and print everything on one label and wrap it over the top. So they use one label and cut their label cost in half. But at the same time, they were also messing with the brand and the brand's consistency. And the integrity of the brand. That's right. And so the idea is that when someone's in California, Washington, or Arizona, and they go into a dispensary or a rec store, that they can find the brand that they know, they recognize, and they trust, and is consistent. <clears throat> so it's, it's really quite difficult. It's, it's certainly not as easy as, um, you know, licensing just any brand, you know, a, a typical brand. Um, in that, you know, there's, there's brand guidelines. They're pretty uh -huh. straightforward. It's all about what the brand stands for. And even though all that exists, you know, now it's, it's more of a meeting in the middle, which is, here's my brand. It's coming into your state. Here's your state's rules and regulations. How do we bridge that gap? Right. You know, so it's, it's tough. It's tough. And with each change of a rule or regulation in each state, which happens all the time, <clears throat> that could affect, you know, the 100,000 packages you just printed out, printed off last week are all of a sudden no good anymore, those types of things. And that happens all the time. So, um, so it's tough. It's tough. Uh, being in the cannabis industry is not, uh, is not for pussies. Yeah, no shit. It takes a lot of tenacity and, uh, you know, a leather skin. And, and you know, to, to, to that end, just to share some things, coming back to the book, I mean, I have met some of the most incredible people um, who are brand owners in the, in the industry that, that have found their sweet spot, <clears throat> you know, sort of in some ways tying up a lot of things that we spoke about earlier. Um, you know, there, there's just incredible people that have skills and talents. And, <clears throat> you know, and just coming, coming back to some of the things you said earlier. So you said people approach you on Instagram and social media or in the street, and they say, hey, Jared, how do I get in the cannabis industry? And as you started to share with them the different ways that they could do that or the things they should think about that, I just wanted to share a couple of, of quick stories with you. The people that I've seen who are most successful in the cannabis industry have had other experiences mm -hmm. and understand the world in many different ways than just growing and selling cannabis. Yeah. I think a perfect example would be Jody Hall. Jody Hall um, worked at Starbucks for many, many years. <clears throat> she was uh, a very high-level assistant to Howard Schultz. She uh, functioned and built out um, Starbucks uh, social media components and, and, the, and the Starbucks community. Mm -hmm. Then she left, and she started her own company, Cupcake Royale, which is essentially um, the cupcake store that started the cupcake trend in the United States. She has, I believe, 13 stores and well over 100 employees. And then she got into the cannabis industry. But by the time she got into the cannabis industry, she understood consumer product goods from Starbucks. She understood what it was like to build a community around brand. She then started a cupcake craze and, and essentially understood baking, which was a key component to, you know, to the good ship, which was her cannabis brand that she started. Um, and then she sold that to Privateer. Yep. Um, 
And you see, you can totally look back and see that her experience took her all the way through and it was connecting these dots as to what the next step was and how she could leverage that. Right. And I could go through like 10 other stories like that, but the most successful people in the cannabis industry have those stories. They have skills that they can leverage into the next thing, you know, and they sort of leapfrog because they have those skills and that perspective and, and that understanding. What I think most people want to know too is like, you don't have to work for someone else in order, in order to learn those skills. Um, you know, there's the, the thing we call life. And I think that you can learn a lot from just living life so long as that you're taking those experiences and, and, and using them to apply to you know, future decisions you make. We talked about that earlier. But for me, like, I know that I stopped working for people you know, when I was like 19. And that was when I had been working for myself since I was like 19 years old. Um, and so I think about that and I'm like, God, how the hell did I do that? <laughs> you know, because I think a lot of people want to, you know, work for themselves, have their own hours. But I'll tell you, those hours aren't really yours. <laughs> They're committed to your business and you're putting in way more of them than you would working for somebody else. But man, does it feel fucking good, you know? It took me a long time to get there, but yeah. But it's like, you know, I think about, well, how can people do that themselves that aren't me? Because not, no one, no one, we're all like snowflakes. We're all different, right? Yeah, Um, well, but I mean, let me share another story, which is like sort of awesome. And it's that same thing. We are all snowflakes and we are all different, but yet we still in in some strange ways have opportunity to create things for ourselves so um you know so i just told you about jody hall who started yep. off in corporate america and yep. worked her way in I'll, I'll tell you just something quickly else um you know larry perigo who owns saints joints um you know he grew up rough and tumble on the streets um doesn't really have an education um painted uh, cars at, uh, I believe it was Mako for many years, just trying to make a living, and was growing weed in his basement, and loved alternative music, loved punk music, and at some point started his own record label. And it was almost like a joke at first, but sure enough, he started to produce albums and and put out uh, a number of bands in, in NorCal. And fast forward, he took his money, he got into the cannabis industry with it, but now what he does is he does very much the same thing that he did when he was creating an album. So, yes, he has his garden and his strains, um, and let's call that his, um, his music, so to speak, and he focuses on that. But what he does is he packages his products, and on those packages. He works with artists, well-known artists and influencers like Mm -hmm. Jeremy Fish and Skinner and a whole bunch of other pretty well-known artists. But the whole idea is that it's really no different, and he looks at it no different than when he was making an album cover for a record. You know, he, he knows he needs to basically get the personality of the of, of the contents out on the box. And he does yeah. it in a way where 
he leverages artists, he builds community, um, and he creates something special. And he limit uh, the boxes are limited edition, and now they become they've become collector's items. So he's almost become this um, cult figure in a weird way. He's almost created this supreme like drop, you know, on a certain date, and the community comes and and gets it. Um, and again, he's done that because he understands what it was like to be in a punk band, what it was like to create a punk music label, what it was like to create the, the label covers for those records, what it was like to sign up those bands. And he's been able to orchestrate his cannabis brand very much like he ran his record label. <clears throat> and so I shared those two opposite stories because, mm -hmm. you know, Jody is, Jody's, you know, wonderful and clean cut and Larry is, you know, in black leather and, uh, and tattooed up and two they, walks of life and they, they come from very different walks of life, but they still found their own way and they still did it their own way. And they still managed to find their strengths and make and manifest their dreams and make their shit happen. And, mm -hmm. and that's what's so cool about this industry. And even though cannabis is the thread that brings it all together <clears throat> or the black hole that sucks us all in, um, we all have the opportunity to create our own past, like, like you and so many other people that we know and we hang out with. Um, it's pretty amazing what, what people can do when they're allowed to. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about this industry too is that you can still be a pioneer. The industry is still in its infancy stage. I mean, I've only been in it for 12 years, but you know, and I feel like I've I feel I feel like I've met a lot of people and I've learned a lot of things, but man, I'm still learning. And that's why that's one of the reasons why I created this podcast is because I wanted to continue to educate myself with people that I highly respect that know things that I don't know that my guests and subscribers and followers and fans and friends and family don't know and now they do. Um, so I really, really appreciate you jumping on the podcast and dropping some knowledge, some nuggets and, uh, you know, the wisdom that, uh, you know, stems from that brain of yours. <laughs> well, it was fun. And I, I thank you for not only having me on, but for the podcast itself and for, for all you do. I think, um, I think you spread the knowledge and, uh, and educate in, in ways that, um, many people only. I appreciate that. Well, you know, a good friend of mine always once said, the teacher will appear when the student is ready. You know, you can learn anything from anybody at any time, as long as you're willing to, to listen. Um, but I also look at my, my parents, and they're both from New York. And so they're very blunt, uh, pun intended. And, uh, um, you know, they, they're very straightforward and honest. And I have a great relationship with my parents. And... I think that there's a lot that I've learned from them also being that, you know, they're also entrepreneurs um, and they've, they've had their own businesses and they've worked for the man or the woman and, you know, um, so I think that there's a lot that I've learned from, from them and, and, and just seeing them do, but, uh, you know, did you, did you have much family, you know, to kind of examine as you grew up as a kid and, and watch do things that, you know, you aspire to do at some point? Um, <clears throat> in some ways. 
Um, <laughs> maybe I've watched some things and, and aspired not to do in other ways, but um, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I Is that an okay question to ask? Yeah, yeah. that's a totally cool okay. question to ask. I think in some ways um, I've taken the safe way, um, you, you know, and based on some of the things I said here today, you know, mm-hmm. um, sure, I went to design school and opened an art gallery that might not be super safe, but, um, but my corporate career sort of says, okay, this guy, you know, took the safe and even though I'd never consider myself a suit, I was sort of always the guy that was in corporate that shouldn't be in corporate, or I was the cool guy that everyone scratched their head and said, what's he doing? Like, we're going to play golf for the weekend, and he's flying across the region. It's like you're the counterculture spy. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but, you know, but, you're just but it took me a influencing little, that counterculture. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was definitely the edgy person in corporate. All my life, but it took me a long time to sort of take make that leap. Mm. Um, and honestly, it wasn't until I was. Well, you have to build your cred first in order for you to get away with it. Yeah, I, I guess yes. Yeah, but but on some levels, it, you know, I think in many ways, I lived for my parents or my parents' wants and desires mm-hmm. until I was about fifty. And then when I was fifty, I said, okay. I've done everything I could possibly do to make them happy. I've worked at all these companies. I'm educated. Now it's my turn. You're like, all right, parents, done appeasing you. Right. Time for my own shit. Right. You know, which is weird to, to finally get to when you're 50. But, but, you know, it was, I got to a place where, you know, I had a beautiful house and brand new cars and had a great job at Microsoft making lots of money, but not really happy. Sure. Um, and so for me, my goal was, you know, how to be happy, um, not to have all the, all the, the external things that, that would make me appear happy, but to yeah. actually be happy. And so being in the cannabis industry has um, allowed me to truly be the person that I am, um, because in many ways, the cannabis industry is, you know, filled with misfits or filled with people finding their own way or using it as an experiment, an experiment or, you know, a countercultural um, thing, or just quite frankly, they don't fit into the mold. And, you know, I, I always knew I never fit into the mold. I just yeah. never did. Um, and now for the first time, I'm able to sort of be who I am, show up to meetings and to places responsibly and offer value to the conversations I participate in, um, but not having to put a suit on every day, not mm-hmm. having to get in line, not having to understand the hierarchy. Um, I mean, all of that. Sure. There, is, there are uniforms right. in the cannabis industry, and there is hierarchy, and there is all of that. It, that all exists, um, but in a different way. So it's. Uh, it's been an amazing journey. Well, on that note, I appreciate you sharing your journey with me. Everyone, please thank Dave Palachuk for joining us on Rebranding Cannabis. Uh, dude, seriously, huge fan of you, and I'm glad we're friends, and I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to finally work together. So um, much love, and uh, where can people find you? 
You can find me at um, my website, <clears throat> which is brandingbud.com, um, or you can and you can purchase the book uh, on Amazon. Perfect. Perfect. Right on. It's available October 15th. Awesome. And eventually, uh, he'll have his own personal Instagram that his branding bud Instagram will connect you to then for, through there uh, because he's going to start selling some consulting. And um, anyways, thanks everyone for joining us on another episode of Rebranding Cannabis. I know I said that about 60 seconds ago, but I don't care. Till next time, see you later.